You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We're doing a slightly more themed study to the day. So obviously we are going to be speaking about war, and what I want to try and do is show you how Christ can work in the midst of war. Obviously when we address the issue of war, a number of questions immediately come to our mind. There are a number of things that we must address or at least think about in times of crisis. And I put these clearly as the question of God. And you may have noticed whenever there's a national crisis, the issue of God comes up in either a positive or a negative way. The issue of suffering is one that a question we must ask. The reality of evil in the world is another question that comes to our mind. And I've also put the nature of man. As I'm sure you're aware, most wars ultimately are men doing horrible things to other men or men trying to stop certain men doing horrible things. That's basically the nature of war. And it really seems that no generation, no culture, is above the waging of war, whether aggressive or defensive wars. They do seem to be a staple of our world. Just in the last two centuries, 1914, we had World War I. 1918, we had the Russian Civil War, which was a massive war in itself. 1939, World War II. 1948, the Israeli War of Independence. 1950, the Korean War. 1959 to 75, the Vietnam War. 1982, the Falklands Conflict. 1990, the Gulf War. 2001, 2014, the war in Afghanistan. 2003, the Iraq War. Ongoing wars in Syria and Lebanon, and obviously this year we've seen Russia and Ukraine at war, and that is only a very brief selection of various wars that could multiply that list over and over with different conflicts. Why is war so pervasive in this world? This is a question we need to ask and actually contemplate a little bit. The issue is humanity. You could say something is wrong with mankind. However, on the other side of that coin, we also have to ask the question, obviously those who want to go to war and do these evil things, there are also many who clearly see war as something wrong and object to many of the evil things. So it's like a paradox. On the one hand, mankind is the cause. On the one hand, we also object to much of what we see going on. This is hard to explain from a worldview without God. Because obviously death without God, death is a catalyst. Suffering is really a a nonsense. It's a personal preference as opposed to a moral wrong or a moral right. However, with the biblical story, we have a clear explanation for for this. Because the Bible teaches us that on the one hand, mankind is made in the image of God. We have part of that moral conscience that we are given through being made in the image of God. Yet on the other side of the coin, the Bible clearly teaches that we are fallen, we are broken, separated from God, and we have the ability to go against that conscience and commit sin. And this has been the history of the world ever since sin first entered, ever since Cain first rose up, really, and killed his brother Abel. We've seen that the history of mankind involves violence and death. And as Jesus himself said, you will see wars and rumours of wars throughout this whole age that we are in now. So what I want to do now is really look at what the answer is to some of these questions. They're deep philosophical questions. I know I've raised them. We could spend hours on each of them alone. I want to do something slightly different. I want to try and look at what happens when we make sure we have Christ in the middle of these things. Now, we don't want to try and summarise too briefly a complex question. There's no simple formula, the answer to war. But in reality, I believe the answer is actually found in God himself. 
and hopefully I can demonstrate that to you a little bit this morning. Today we remembered the signing of the armistice, 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, which brought World War I to a close. Just 20 years later, on the 9th of November 1938, it was what's been termed as Kristallnacht, which is the night of broken glass. This was the night where the Hitler Youth, German civilians, and the Nazis, the SS, number of different people, started the pogroms in Germany. And they went around, these are some actually just newly found photos from an old camera that was found in Israel recently that they've seen, which was one of the Germans' cameras. This is basically what happened. The soldiers would go into houses, go into businesses, smash them up. It was like a mass sort of pogrom and riot. They'd round up a lot of people. A lot of Jewish people were sent to camps on this day. And this was, by many historians, considered to be the beginning of the Holocaust, in fact. On September 1st, 1938, war broke out when Hitler invaded Poland. On the same day, well, actually, sorry, the one day before war broke out, I want to focus in on something else that happened that most people probably are not aware of. It's really only a piece of Christian history that connects with this. But one day before war broke out in London, the preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, was appointed as the pastor of Westminster Chapel. He was following G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great preacher, but Martin Lloyd-Jones came to the pulpit a day before war broke out, and he would lead that church throughout the war. And he ended up delivering a series of sermons that are now published under a book called Why Does God Allow War? And he filled that church to capacity almost every time he spoke during those times in the war. It comes back to that issue. During war, people seek God. They seek comfort and solace and these sorts of things. But what he did in these sermons has really why his book is still a bestseller today. He said, I preach the messages to the people in the hope that they might help them and strengthen their faith in the critical days through which we are passing. One time when he was preaching, a bomb hit the building across the road, causing plaster to fall on the heads of the congregation in Westminster. Lloyd-Jones has reported that during that he stopped from his prayer and his message, and he looked around calmly, and then he continued his message, and everyone sat in rapt attention and didn't move. Lloyd-Jones's wartime sermons became famous really because they pointed out two things that happen in times of crisis for the people of God. They, war or crisis, whatever it may be, can become both a mirror and a lens. This is the way Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. War can be both a mirror and a lens. A mirror to show us ourselves and a lens to show us more of God. I'm going to flesh these two points out really based on what Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching. He says... It helps us know ourselves, because time of crisis often reveals our true character. It reveals who we really are and what we really believe. He said, there is no time to remember the conventionalities and the customs. No opportunity, as it were, of putting on the mask. We just act instinctively. The natural, the real, and the true come into view. He also said that war put human sin on display like nothing else. It reveals man and the possibilities within man's nature. And in these sermons, he obviously focused them on his own congregation at that time. He used it as a time to help them examine themselves, to look upon themselves. And one of the things he did is he went through a typical church congregation like he had, and he identified different groups 
of people in his church and how they might respond. And it's quite interesting to see what he does there. He identified one group for many in his church because they did not hold a proper biblical worldview. That is, there was a major disconnect between their faith, their professed faith, and the harsh realities of war. They had never been told, taught to think Christianly about all things, war, pain, suffering, death, and why these things are in the world from a biblical perspective. Because of that, they really just acted like everyone else who was not a believer at this time. In reality, their religion seemed to make little difference to them because they didn't have a biblical worldview. He identified another group, those who were raised in a religious context, who had unquestionably accepted religious teaching from their church or their family because it was tradition at that time. But now, when they were confronted with a massive crisis, again, they reacted the same as those who had no faith. It really seemed to make very little difference. Another group, he said, at his time, whose interest in Christianity was mainly intellectual. See, while the first groups that he mentioned hadn't thought much about it at all, these, group, these people had thought a lot about it. But yet still, he said something was missing. In his own words, he says, religion was something to talk about and to argue about, something which a man could take up and put down. It had never become a part of their inner actual experience. And so when war came, something more than debate and arguments were needed, and this group themselves also found themselves spiritually bankrupt. And another type were those who were perplexed by war completely. Their faith had been for them an entirely personal thing, completely experiential. It was about their salvation experience and how they were feeling all the time. Deep theology did really not interest them. During peacetime, all was well with those people. But when war came, they fell into difficulty. They really did not know how God could allow war. They'd never really thought about the concept of God working in the world outside of their own personal bubble. And a final type of person that Lloyd-Jones identified, as he says, with the kind of person who has held certain vague and loose ideas about God and about the nature of God. He said those who would emphasize his love at the expense of his other attributes, thinking really that the Christian message is simply about being happy and not offending anyone. He said they cannot understand how God can possibly allow war with all his cruelty and suffering. It seems to them to be incompatible with everything that they thought they knew and believed. Now that was obviously quite a long time ago that he made those, and I think all of those categories of people still exist today in the Christian church. It's, this is one of the reasons why his messages are so timely, because they still speak to us today. He captures that very well. Now, in light of the crisis that they had then, we could equally say there's many crises that do the same thing to us. People going through war right now, whatever it may be, we need to ask the questions, what does it reveal about us today? Use it as a mirror. What does it show us about our faith? What is it we really believe? Is it something that just makes us feel good? Is it something that actually helps us get through these situations? Are there questions that we haven't asked, that we've left unexamined because we don't want to look into them? Is our relationship more than just a personal experience or just knowledge? It must be both. You see, Lloyd-Jones drew crowds of thousands in that church every time he preached, three times a week, 
because he was preaching the reality of the true living God as revealed in Scripture. He had a very distinct preaching, expository preaching is what he did. He spent months on each verse really going through, and it drew thousands, many from the universities and around London at this time. That's one thing. So it was a mirror. But he said it was also a lens. And what he meant by that is is it allows you to see God more clearly. Now, what he really meant by this was the fact that when trials come, when war come, it often strips away the things in life that we rely on, our safety and our security and the regular mundane nine-to-five existence that we have. Sometimes when that is destructive, it really causes us to focus on the things that we haven't thought about before. And he said, when you do this, you are taught your own weaknesses and you can depend on God like no other time in your life. And when you do that, you actually end up seeing God in his beauty and his majesty all the more. It forces us to take an eternal perspective on things, to think on things of eternity. C.S. Lewis also preached a sermon during these days at Oxford University called Learning in a Time of War. He said the problem with war is that it aggravates the human situation, which is that we were not made for this world but for eternity, and one day we will leave this world for our real destination. And this is why often in times of war and national crisis, people search for God. Yet we also know that the Christian message has a radically different message to anyone else at this time. The message we preach is not the same as all other religions. The one we hold as the answer is different from all other people in the world. Our message centres around the person of Jesus Christ. The story of God becoming incarnate in this person, laying down his life for his enemies, is one that has provided a model, a glimpse into what could be of a greater future. One who promises himself to bring peace to the world. You remember at his birth, in Luke chapter 2, They sang, glory in God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. The one who was, when he was speaking and living on this earth, he said to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. This is the one who overcomes this world of sin and death one who promised to bring us ultimately to a world where these things are no more. Listen to the ancient prophecy of Micah chapter 4. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that, we, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for from Zion will go forth the law. Even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, this is speaking of that time that we've been studying in Revelation, when Christ has come back and he is ruling. He says he will judge between many peoples, render decisions for mighty distant nations. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. That is ultimately the the future under Christ. Never again will they train for war. It is a symptom of a broken and sinful world, which one day will be completely restored under his reign. That remains in the future. However, in a way, that is already available to us in many ways in the gospel, because the way that he will achieve that future is by first restoring peace between God and man before man and man are reconciled in that way. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace on earth among men, peace with God through Jesus Christ. 
Now, what I want to try and do now is show you this in real life using a couple of illustrations. I've probably mentioned some of these before in, in history in my preaching, but they're some of my favourite ones and they're, they speak into this topic very well. What difference does Jesus make to those in the grip of war? That glimpse of that future time that we can see even now in the midst of these things. December 7th, 1941. Roosevelt gave his famous speech, a date that will live in infamy. You remember, you remember that speech? On this day, it was the, he's referring to the American naval base at Pearl Harbor that was attacked without warning by the Japanese. On that day, over 300 Japanese bombers attacked 7.48 a.m. in the morning. It was a successful attack. They damaged all eight U.S. battleships that were harboured at Pearl Harbor at that time, sinking four of them. Over 180 U.S. aircraft, over 2,000 soldiers were killed at that time. And this was the day that Japan officially declared war on the U.S. and the British Empire that same day. On the very next day, December the 8th, America officially entered the war. And in response to Pearl Harbor, which is something they planned, it was a, took about a year to really come up with a response, but they planned something called the Doolittle Raids. And the idea of this was that they wanted to fly these bombers. 80 men flew these bombers into, over, into Japan, basically. First time this had ever been done. And they were to drop their bombs, and they were to then land somewhere safe in China, refuel, and then come home. And they did these missions. One of the men on board was a man named Sergeant Jacob DeShazer. He was a staff sergeant, and he flew one of these planes. And he, if you tell his story, I'll tell you some of it now, he was so pleased to be chosen for this great privilege because he was so consumed with anger and hatred over what the Japanese had done at Pearl Harbor to his people. So he couldn't wait, in his own words, to drop the bombs on Tokyo at this time. And during the raid, they did that, they dropped their bombs, but unfortunately they didn't make it to China. They ran out of fuel and he had to bail out over Japanese-controlled China at that time. And they were take, he was taken captive by the Japanese and put in a prisoner of war camp. This is a picture of him there. I think he's the final one at the end, Jacob de Chaser. And then he was put into a Japanese POW camp, and these things were very, very brutal. He, was spent, he spent 40 months in captivity there, 34 months of which were in solitary confinement. He was the victim of cruel torture, starvation, and many of his men were experimented on. If you know the history, it's horrible, I won't go into it. But that is what happened. De Chaser said in his own words, My hatred for the enemy drove me crazy. My thoughts turned toward what I heard about Christianity changing hatred between human beings into real brotherly love, and I was gripped with a strange longing to examine the Christian Bible to see if I could find the secret. I begged my captors to get a Bible for me, and at last, in the month of May 1944, a guard brought me the book, but told me I could have it for only three weeks. I eagerly began to read its pages, chapter after chapter, gripped my heart." He goes on to tell how he was fascinated with these Old Testament prophecies, like the one we just read, about this coming Redeemer who would bring peace to the earth. And then as he read the New Testament, he realised that the New Testament holds Jesus Christ as the fulfilment, as the Redeemer spoken of in the Old Testament. On June the 8th, 1944, de Chaser confessed his sins. He received the forgiveness and salvation promised him in God's word. Even though he remained in prison for a year after that, 
He tells, as he says, he was now free from hatred even towards those who were still torturing him at this time. And after he was released, he wrote a tract called I Was a Prisoner of Japan. And in that tract, he says, How my heart rejoiced in my newness of spiritual life. Even though my body was suffering so terribly from the physical beatings and lack of food, but suddenly I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. Now after the war, de Chaser actually became a minister. He went to seminary and he became a missionary to Japan, of all places. And he served there for over 30 years. He planted over 23 churches in that time. Thousands of Japanese responded to this POW's invitation to receive Christ. And if you know this story, you'll know that the most famous of all of those people that responded to his message was a man called Mitsuo Fuchida. And this is obviously interesting. Mitsuo Fuchida was one of the commanders who led the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. He was actually one of the commanders who led that attack. He was actually saved because an American missionary handed him that little tract, I was a prisoner of Japan at a railway station after the war. And he picked it up, he was interested in it at this time because he was having to testify in the courts after the war and everything was, was going on at, at war crimes and things like that. He says after reading that track, he wanted this piece that he heard this American speak of. It spoke to him and he saw that he found it in the Bible. So he requested and got himself a Bible. And Fuchida, like de Chaser, was moved by Jesus' cry from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And those words resonated with him. In September of 1949, Fuchida accepted Christ as a saviour. He was baptised, and he went on to become a missionary in Asia too. He says, Though my country has the highest liter literacy rate in the world, education has not brought salvation. Peace and freedom both national and personal, come only through an encounter with Jesus Christ. He is the only one who was powerful enough to change my life and inspire it with his thoughts. He was the only one, he was the only answer to Jake DeShazer's tormented life. And amazingly, over the next few years, Fushida and DeShazer became friends. And they spoke to many crowds, together and individually, sharing their testimony of the power of Jesus Christ to transform lives. And I love that photo of those two men there, smiling at each other with the word of God in between them. New, redeemed creations. That's one story. Let me just share with you one more. The 8th of June, 1972. This is the Vietnam War. An American warplane dropped a napalm bomb in South Vietnam. And this event gave rise to this very famous picture. It can be a distressing image, but I'm going to show it to you because it's a very famous picture. It's in most history textbooks, and you you'll undoubtedly would have seen it at some point before. This is the picture here. It ended up, this picture won the Pulitzer Prize, Pulitzer Prize, and it was called The Terror of War. And the little girl there, just nine years old at the time, seen fleeing naked, clothes and skin, badly burnt from the napalm bomb, which is like a firebomb, basically, that happened at this time. The little girl's name was Kim Fook, and her story is equally as amazing. The bombs were the beginning of her journey in pain, 
and actually literally her journey's kind of just over just early a few months ago this article i saw this article online she received her last burn surgery basically just in june 22 of this year she, she's still alive and that was the last surgery that she'll need that was just this year and it was this picture that made the world gasp really it became iconic the Vietnamese government used it for propaganda and so did numerous other people and she was a pawn in the middle, this girl. And she ended up being suicidal and it was just, her story is very tragic in many, many ways. She was raised in what's called the Khao Dai religion, which is a kind of universalist, semi-Buddhist-style, sort of God, God is everything type religion, to summarise it briefly. And after the war and after this happened in a process of healing, she tried to follow and find solace in these religious traditions. And I'm going to read to you a lot from her own words, which is from her article here, These Bombs Led Me to Christ. She said, And so I continue to bear the crippling weight of anger, of bitterness and resentment towards those who caused my suffering. The searing fire that penetrated my body, the ensuing burn baths, the dry and itchy skin, the inability to sweat, which turned my flesh into an oven in Vietnam's sweltering heat. I craved relief that would never come. In 1982, I found myself crouched inside Saigon's central library, pulling Vietnamese books of religion off the shelves one by one, and the stack in front of me included books on Baha'i, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Khao Dai, and also a copy of the New Testament. And eventually she got around to reading that New Testament. And as she read this New Testament, she saw that what she had been told about Jesus was not, in fact, accurate. He presented himself as the only way to God. In opposition to what she has been told, he also suffered and died for that claim. And just like her, he bore the scars on his body testifying to that. And this resonated with her a lot. And she said that my salvation experience happened, fittingly enough, on Christmas Eve. It was 1982, and I was attending a special worship service at a small church in Saigon. How desperately I needed peace, how ready I was for love and joy. I had so much hatred in my heart, so much bitterness, and I wanted to let go of all my pain. I wanted to pursue life instead of holding fast to the fantasies of death. I wanted Jesus. So when the pastor finally finished speaking, I stood up, stepped outside into the aisle and made my way to the front of the sanctuary and accepted Jesus. And there, in a small church in Vietnam, mere miles from the street where my journey had begun amid the chaos of war, on the night before the world would celebrate the birth of Messiah, I invited Jesus into my life. And when I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced the kind of healing that can only come from God. I was finally at peace. Nearly half a century has passed since I found myself running, frightened, naked and in pain, down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors of that day, the bombs, the fire, the shrieks, the fear. Nor will I forget the years of trial and torment that followed. But when I think about how far I have come, the freedom and the peace that comes from faith in Jesus, I realise there is nothing greater or more powerful than the love of our blessed Saviour. My faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who have hurt and scarred me. It has enabled me to pray for my enemies rather than curse them. And it has enabled me not just to tolerate them, but to truly love them. In 1996, she was invited to speak in, a, in Washington, D.C. to a gathering of several thousand Vietnam vets. And at the end of her talk, 
An American came up to her who confessed to her that he was in fact the pilot that dropped those bombs on her village. She records it. He cried like a child, couldn't stop. And he asked me, do you forgive me? Do you forgive me? And she said, yes, that's why I'm here. And he told me, please look into my eyes, see the sorrow I've carried for 24 years. And of course, she says, I gave him a hug and we hugged and wept together and we both rejoiced in our new life in Christ. She says, I will forever bear the scars of that day. That picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil of which humanity is capable. That picture defined my life. But in the end, it gave me a mission, a ministry and a cause. And today I thank God for that picture. Today I thank God for everything, even that road, especially for that road, because on that road, it was the beginning of my journey to Christ. And I could give you more stories like this. They're just two that are powerful. But I, I want to turn it back on us now with that whole mirror concept. Let me sum this up really with a challenge. All these people, this lady here, Desheza, Mitsu Fushida, they had every reason to hate each other. They had everything. They had nothing in common, different cultures, different lives, different parts of the world, different aims, different objectives, different leaders. They were enemies in the very real meaning of the sense in a way that we probably don't know in our own life experience. Yet they were changed, they were transformed, their hate was replaced with love. And here's the thing, they all claim that that happened because they met the promised redeemer talked about in the Bible all those years ago, Jesus Christ. That's what they claim in their own words and their own stories. And also we know that the Bible records for us the claims of that same saviour, Jesus Christ, who tells us that when people meet him, they are the exact things that will happen to them. So we have on the two sides, these people claiming that is what happened. Jesus claiming that is what is going to happen when people meet me. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Either you have to say that those people were lying, they were deceived by something, whatever that may be, they were plain wrong in what they were saying, they did it for personal gain or whatever it may be. These are all very hard things to argue from the history, from the facts that we have. Or you need to come up with a better explanation of what happened. Or you need to try and explain how both Jesus said this is what will happen thousands of years ago and these people demonstrated with their lives this is exactly what happens when you meet Jesus Christ. Now if you can't provide a better explanation you may need to prepare yourself to just accept that what they say is actually true. In fact, what they said about Jesus is true. What he claimed is true. He is the promised Messiah who has the ability to bring peace between God and man and then between man and his fellow man. And he does this by providing salvation. And we do that now through the gospel and one day he'll bring us into that world in that age where we see it more fully throughout the whole world. And if you can't provide a better explanation, then you're supposed to be very uncomfortable at the reality of what these things are. It's supposed to unsettle you because you realise that you may be missing the most important thing in the world. At this point, it does not really matter what your religious tradition is. Think of all those different people that Martin Lloyd-Jones identified those who have grown up as Christians, those who think a lot about religion, those who like to argue about it, whatever it may be. However, if you do not have a better explanation, you need to come face to face 
in the mirror of this truth that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He really is the one who can do these things. And that answer will have a huge impact on your life and your eternity. And this is really one of the reasons why we have this constant message in the Bible where God says, choose life. This day, choose life. Today is the day of salvation. That invitation that Christ extended to his disciples, that the church has been extending to everyone since then, that those people, Jacob de Shazer, Fuchida, that they experienced when they accepted that invitation of new life from Jesus Christ is still available and he is still offering it to people today. And we do this, we acknowledge that our lives are broken, we are sinners separated from God, that there is no way that we can repair that rift between us. The only way is to come to Jesus Christ. He died in our place. He died for our sins. He laid down his life for us. He was risen, rose again, defeating death and making that way so that once again we could have peace with God. This is why he is truly called the Prince of Peace. There's no one else with that title. And he bids us today come to him and drink freely from the water of the river of life. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.